Greetings, Amigops, and Top Teners everywhere. Welcome back to another edition of Top Ten with Kyle and Mike. I am your co-host, Kyle. Not sitting opposite me right now is my co-host, Michael, as I am re-recording this intro because his audio cut out inconveniently. Mike's audio picks up right where we start at number 10, so that is where I will leave you, but I will give you a brief introduction to this list. Many of you have probably listened to this episode from last year. This is this year's version of the Kyle Booker Prize, which is simply a top 10 list of all of the nonfiction books that I read last year. The books didn't need to be published last year. I just needed to read them last year. That's the list on my audio file, which was uninterrupted. Unlike Michael's, I said something like, let's start with number 10. So number 10 is a book called Breath, colon, the new science of a lost art. <laughs> so you just said breadth. Breath. No D. No. No D. Okay. Breath. I thought this was going to be a self-help book about doing a bunch of different things well. That sounds like a book Tim Ferriss would suggest. Breath. Being a jack of all trades in a world of specialists. Uh, like, literally. <laughs> breath. Being a, being a living human. <laughs> Breath. Avoiding the iron lung. <laughs> Breath. Breathe with your fucking nose. Breath. Get rid of your albuterol inhaler, you fucking nerd. <laughs> so, this book is, like, pretty aggressively <laughs> just pseudoscience. Oh, I like that. And the earlier you realize it, the more fun you'll have with it. Because it's just this loon, this guy named, this guy named James Nestor, who just, like, runs around chasing any kind of, like, weird half published like half legit journal what he can find that has anything to do with kind of like breathing exercises and some of it is it's it's all pseudoscience doesn't mean not all of it's true like a lot of it is like true it's like weird crazy like breathing techniques that people have developed to do different things like raising your core body temperature and there's just like there's like lots of stuff but it can be it, the the fun in this one is more about just like imagining this guy running around researching it because he goes like mm. there's some wild stories and crazy shit that he kind of like gets into and including like how your breath is like related to um, various other bodily functions and I don't know stuff like that and like farting no like like, like concentration and like like hmm. this ties in well with like another book i read this year like there's a lot of like a lot of positive benefits from like controlled breathing exercises yeah. and breathing through your nose like there's lots of like actual health benefits to those kinds of things which he goes into and is interesting but the, the more fun part of this book is just like the wild shit that like has no bearing on yeah. your day-to-day -day breathing life like he he does this this wild experiment that it's, it doesn't make any sense. He's like trying to prove that breathing through your nose is better than breathing through your mouth, and in many ways that's true because your nose is designed to filter out toxins in a way that your mouth is not. But his way of proving this is by jamming plugs into his nose and only breathing through his mouth for like two straight weeks, which has that seems. Like, it could have some detrimental impacts on your health. It, like, almost, not, not literally almost kills him, but his life was just misery for two weeks because Ugh. because he couldn't drain anything out of his head. And so, obviously, oh, he, pressure. he, like, couldn't Ugh. sleep and his head felt like it was going to explode. And then he, like, finishes it and he's like, so that's why you should breathe through your nose because if you only breathe through your mouth, this is what happens. And 
the two are just not the same. Like plugging your nose is not the same as just breathing through your mouth. So it's oh god, it's stuff like that where it, it doesn't make any sense, but it's really fun to read. That's the fun part. Yeah, exactly. I will say though, the actual science piece of it I find interesting because I was actually talking about this with maybe my mom the other day about how I learned about kind of controlling your breathing a few years ago and how I was I was unaware of how serious and obvious the physiological changes you could kind of create by changing your breathing were. Yes. Like I just I, I didn't occur to me that you really could calm down by breathing because I guess I just had never not been calm. Yeah. And it was like you can actually do that. I I the elevator at my office flashes like facts. And they're always like dumb. Yeah. It's like, oh, sometimes it's like, oh, meatloaf died, which, <laughs> you know, it's good, inf- good, important information. But it's usually like these weird sponsored yeah. things that are really dumb. But there was one today. I think it was on the elevator that was talking about weird, but still science based ways to kind of jumpstart your mental well-being and how there's all these like kooky Gwyneth Paltrow goopy things that they say you can do. But this was like, hey, what are some actual things that are rooted in science that you can do to sort of jumpstart yourself? And it was talking about how um, in certain cultures in I think it was saying like the Baltic region, people will just jump in freezing cold water because what ends up happening is your body when you're when you're feeling stressed out and you're having a lot of blood flow to whatever your brain or whatever however that works it's sort of feeding into your stress but when you jump into freezing cold water your body enters fight or flight mode and it causes your blood flow to sort of regulate and go throughout your body and it's it causes everything to basically just emergency reset mm. Because your body can't focus on diverting all of this attention to something that's not about living or dying. Oh, that's kind of fun. And I thought it was—it was like kind of cool. It's like okay, that and that fits. Like I, I that checks out. In sort of my own ways, I know how that is. Like you know, everybody knows that. Hey, you're stressed out. Go take a run. Mm-hmm. Well, the run—it doesn't just just like distract you in a literal sense mentally. It also causes your body to divert its resources to things other than whatever's stressing you out. Yeah. Yeah, there, there's lots of stuff like that in here. Yeah. But breathing, like, I've this ties into another book I read this year. But, like, I've worked that into my routine. Like, and it's just like you said, like, it really can kind of calm you down. And, like, it's fun to do, like, a, a fun little experiment like that and experience, like, pretty much immediate results. Yeah. And experience it. So that was fun. It's very quick, uh, this book. I'd recommend it. But just know, you know what I'd like you to do. Can you tell us as you go whether you listened to or read Ooh, yeah. these? Because that would be interesting. Yeah, I read this one, but I imagine it would have been fun to listen to. I have a hard time listening to technical books sometimes because I have a hard time like retaining it just by hearing it. I think, but that's the consensus in our house. Caroline says she likes memoirs, uh, audiobooks, but doesn't do well with kind of involved fiction. Or technical stuff. It depends stuff. on the fiction. But yeah, that's completely true. Yeah. I think I've more or less had that same experience. I like a good history. That's like, I like, um, like I listened to um, uh, Say Nothing, the book about Northern Ireland. Like mm. that was a good listen because it's, there's a lot of detail, but it's not so crucial. It's more cumulative. Right. Like by the fifth time you hear such and such a person's name, it sinks in, which is how I read anyway. Yeah, I don't pick up on the first time anyway. 
but it's not so crucial that I remembered the first four. That's perfect for audio, yeah. Yeah. All right, how about number nine? So number nine is a book you recommended to me called Fathoms. Yes. Maybe you want to... I just read your review, actually. Oh, yeah? (laughs) I did. (laughs) I think I said something along the lines of like... Oh, oh, so sorry. It's Fathoms, colon, The World and the Whale. Yes. It's The World in the Whale, right? I-N? Yeah. Not and the whale. Which is a good descriptor because it's really... It's kind of like... It's kind of all over the place, but the general theme yes. is that it's like this relationship between people and whales, between whales and other animals, between whales and the ocean, like like the kind of like how we see ourselves in whales, how we project ourselves onto whales when there's nothing to see necessarily, like all kinds yeah. of stuff. And it kind of ends up being like half biology and half kind of ecological philosophy, I guess is like how I would yeah. describe it. That's, I was going to say like spiritualism, but I think ecological philosophy is exactly right. It's, and it kind of like alternates. Like you'll, re, you'll listen to it. I listened to this one, like you recommended, and I would recommend that. It's like, it alternates between being like incredibly cool, fun fact, like w- the fact that whale fetuses have legs. And then as they grow, they, cause they're mammals, they like have legs from a million years ago. And then they go away as they, as the fetus develops. Like that's just like the, I'll never forget that. And then the next chapter is like this whole discussion about like the rise and fall of whaling and how it's persisting and like what that says about like Japanese whaling culture. And it's, you know, like, and it alternates, you know, it kind of ping pongs, but it's, I liked listening to this one. I think you were right to recommend it because the, the narrator does a really good job and the way that it's written. I don't, I can't think of a really good comparison for how, I don't know, maybe you, I don't know if you felt this way or not. It like kind of felt like listening to poetry at times. Like it was very artistic, I think. Kind of. Well, I think that I think it's cool. One of the neat, really neat things about it is exactly what you're saying, which was <clears throat> like you'd have a chapter where the the author is talking about going to a whaling send off for the Japanese whaling fleet and talking about her own relationship to potentially eating whale and how it's like there's a visceral that's kind of gross reaction, and then there's a cultural kind of blowback where your brain goes well hold on are you just being culturally insensitive or ignorant and then it's well what does that mean and are different cultures allowed to define different values about which creatures they do and don't value and what does that mean for the future of the earth if different cultures value different resources differently and what does it mean to call a whale a resource and it, it and I, I think it doesn't get like super recursive and so definitional that it doesn't allow itself to make any di- like uh, conclusions, which I think does happen sometimes with books like this. Yeah, where they get so caught up in the idea of like, well, what is ethics anyway? It's like, yeah. well, okay, let's just <laughs> what is a way? All right, right. So I thought the book. So it was like half of the chapters I'd say roughly fall into that bucket, and then the other half fall into this super poetic bucket. You're saying like the the chapter that stuck with me. The reason I read it because I read. I think it was the Atlantic, their books of the year in 2020 or whatever. And it was talking about the whale fall, I think it was oh, called. Oh, yeah. Chapter. That was crazy. It's just, it's like, that's a masterpiece of poetic writing. It's a whole chapter about the journey of a dead whale from the surface of the ocean to the floor of the ocean and how long it takes and what happens and what would happen to the actual body as it goes and which creatures it interacts with. So cool. Yeah, I, I, I love that. And like, 
the imagery was just so incredible. I I don't remember the number, yeah. but it was like some staggering number they estimate of whales currently sinking to the ocean because yeah. it takes like yeah because it takes like months. So you just have this image of like hundreds of th- uh, maybe not hundreds of thousands, but hundreds of whales kind of all falling to the bottom of the ocean across the world. It's yeah. just very kind of a beautiful thing to listen to. It also does this thing that I like. A question I always like to ask, and you do this too, and it's part of what I think has bonded us is <clears throat> like the. The questions you we wouldn't think of, and then the moment you ask it, you're like, oh, I don't know. I was just watching an episode of The Chef Show, and Dave Filoni was on, and he was talking to John Favreau, and Dave Filoni, for people who don't know, is the creator, I think, of Clone Wars. And yes, and a number of other very successful yeah, Star Wars Yeah, co-creator, I believe, of Mandalorian. He's, he's a Star Wars guy. He's basically he's the, the successor he's the Star to George Wars Lucas. Yeah. yeah. And... He was saying that one of the things that hooked him on Star Wars as a kid was the scene when they're, I think it's the Cloud City is where Darth Vader captures Han Solo. Bespin. Yeah, Bespin. Yeah. Yeah. And how he's sitting at the head of a banquet table with a plate of food in front of him. (laughs) And he's like, so how does he eat? (laughs) Does he take? Does he take the mask off? (laughs) And that's like the sort of funny question you and I would ask ourselves. And... It's like, that's a goofy example, but a really great example is, okay, so whales die, what the fuck happens? Like, that's a question that you're not asking yourself, but the moment you ask it, suddenly your brain has to jump to all of these secondary questions like, wait a second, how long does it take? How many are there? What? That, yeah, either it dies and it sinks to the bottom of the ocean over a very long time, or there's a whole... Another chapter about what happens to a beached whale and all the complications that go into what do you do? Because, oh, oh my God, the, one of the coolest chapters of a book. I'm, I forgot about that one. Like, oh, OK, you put it back in the ocean. Nope. You <laughs> try to like roll it over. No, it doesn't nope. work. Can't poison you shoot it. it. No, you poison it. You blow it up. You hit it with the rock. You euthanize it with some sort of chemical. Like, oh my God, you just, you wouldn't think. That's Yeah, it's really cool. Don't make the same mistake I did because it's kind of poetic in nature. The audiobook, she, so like, I never saw the physical hard copy of the book, but it, it must just be like a lot of small sections, each with a header. So yeah. at the beginning of each chapter, yes, she that was so confusing to me. At the beginning of each chapter, she there must be just like a list of all the headers for yeah. the different paragraphs or sections. But in the audiobook, she just reads through them in sequence, and she doesn't yeah. explain what's happening. So she's just no context. Nothing. So she's just like whale falls, harpooning around the world, Japanese blubber, whale in the sky, and there, and you're like. Yeah. It just sounds like slam poetry. <laughs> like, what the fuck is going? Oh, on? that I'm so glad you said that. But what was funny was when eventually, yeah, like three quarters of the way through, my brain I was finally like, oh. caught up. I was like, oh, and then it became exciting. Well, it was sort of fun. It's like, how is she going to pay off? Like whales on whales on whales. Yeah. You're like, oh, what does that mean? I get through the chapter and like she'd start talking about harpooning, and I'd like slowly pieced together that the sequence matched the slam yes. poetry and i was like oh okay but mm-hmm. it's a credit to the way that she writes or a, maybe not a credit depending on your perspective but that like i was thought it was slam poetry yes yeah that yes for the audience i would say let that direct you yes 
if if you hear that and say, ooh, read it. If you hear that and say, fuck these guys, yes. don't read yeah. it. That's a, yeah. a simple litmus test. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was number nine. Thank you for recommending that one, Mike. Yeah, I'm glad you read it. Uh, all right, number eight. Is This a very popular book that I finally got around to reading called Sapiens, colon, mm. A Brief History of Humankind. It's like one of the most presumptuous titles <laughs> I've ever heard. I, I really like the book, but what a presumptuous title. The funny part is that I think it's presumptuous on the part of like his publisher, but having listened to this guy in interviews, like he means it. Yeah. And... This is Dr. I believe he must be a doctor. Dr. Yuval Noah Harari. This book, I think, deservedly so, has like kind of a reputation. Like you've probably heard of this book. It's a lot. And my and it's it's but it's so fucking interesting. Like there's like there are a lot of like foundational things in this book that kind of changed the way I thought about (laughs) everything. And like if you're lucky in a year you read a book or two that makes you think differently about something and this had like several of those in one book which is pretty incredible the the big one being like he goes through like a very detailed history of like how our cognitive kind of abilities came about and how they differentiate us from animals in like a very specific way and the big like key pieces that separates humans from other animals is that we have the ability to invent fictions and so like in an in like a very simple way it makes sense like oh we can invent the idea of an ancestor of ours being alive somewhere beyond where we can see them yeah but in a more complicated sense he goes through this whole analogy of how toyota the company is a fiction like completely made up collective fiction and we but the the what makes us unique is that we just all agree that it exists and so it does and we do that with all kinds of things then he gets like he just like kind of adds on top of that idea of like human rights is a fiction like there's nothing there's no you can't find human rights in our cells it's just something that we've all agreed on so anyways you have to read the book to get more into like the implications of that but it's just stuff like that that i thought was really really fascinating and it reads like history at times and there's stretches where it can be kind of a slog because it's like a 600 page book but yeah super worth have you read this one yeah Yeah, i have and i remember i remember I think you and I have talked about history before. History, nonfiction, I guess, broadly defined. Where if you're going to write about something factual, you're not making up a story. Then your options are two things to generate interest. One is have a different angle on something people already know. So, like I read a book called The Berlin Baghdad Express. It's about uh, the construction of a railway from Berlin to Baghdad and how that explains in a in a way. The relationship between the Ottoman Empire and Germany during World War One. That's factual. It's something that's been, you know, generally speaking, World War One has been covered before, but that was a different angle. Mm-hmm. It's a slightly different way of writing about it. So that was what grabbed me. So that's one way of doing history. But the other is to take something also, so that's like a, d- a different sub-story. Or you take something people know about and you just frame it differently. And I'm thinking, trying to think of like a good example of that, but like a brief history of uh, time would be a good example mm. of taking stuff that's not new and certainly not new to the scientific community, but it's a new way of thinking about things. And that's what I thought was so cool about this. I would imagine that most every anthropologist in the world, like, you know, real anthropologists would be aware of every fact 
that Dr. Harari is detailing in this book. But what's different is he starts with this really different premise, which is humans are, or excuse me, I should say more precisely, Homo sapiens is just one species uh, or one subspecies. I'm now forgetting what the level of classification is, but one subspecies of human. Right. Which is in itself not like a, I don't think a super controversial anthropological or classification idea, but it's a different way of thinking. It's okay. So Homo neanderthalensis or, you know, Australia, I guess Australopithecus would be different, but like Homo erectus is not actually a different animal than Homo sapiens. It's just a different member of a very close, it's like a different subspecies. It's a tiger versus a lion. Yeah, or even like a Bengal tiger versus yeah, right. a Siberian tiger. Like it's it's his way of thinking is that it's that close. Right. And that's just that's not a new fact, I suppose. It's just an interpretation of something that's like, whoa, what a what a mind blowing like freshman you know anthropology class like hits. What do they say? Hits bomb yeah. or whatever. Like the meme is <laughs> like, bomb. whoa, it's like a crazy moment. It is. There's several moments like that in this book. Um, yeah, and what you just said about the collective fiction, it's like, whoa. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's not factually new to me to say that a contract between two parties is not real i yeah i'm aware that it's just like a thing we've agreed but to actually take that and zoom out and say all of our like social connections and the fabric of our very society is just a collectively accepted fiction it's not factually new but what a weird way to think about this. i certainly had not ever thought about it in that context or thought about its implications or its importance um, yeah. So that was really fun to read. My only caveat with this one is, if you're like me and you're a little sensitive to this kind of thing, the end of the yeah. book like really bummed me out <laughs> because the chicken thing was near the end, right? That thing specifically, like it just like really put me in a in a in a damp and a really. Damp. I didn't love that. I I won't repeat it here because it like really <laughs> made me sad for like an entire day. But I remember I read that on the train to work. I remember. <laughs> Jesus, like fuck. I uh, but he's like he's so clinical. Like he's studying Homo sapiens as you would study a brand of like a strain of bacteria. Like it's very clinical, and it's Severus Snape with those like slugs in a jar. Which yeah, which like you have to be to do this kind of subject material. But just like be ready for that because it's not like it's a completely unbiased examination of our kind. (laughs) <laughs> he's like korean jesus he doesn't have time for your problems no he's busy yeah korean shit so that's sapiens well-earned reputation yeah, yeah. now shall so, we yeah we just did number eight right <laughs> stop it's gonna be pulling, stop pulling your here. pork <laughs> <laughs> i'm not even gonna explain yeah, that to the listeners we'll move on. uh i would just, wait uh, here's a hint oh <laughs> on that note let's move on to the not top three as soon as kevin gives us some clearance thanks kev kev in that was 
nasty. Right back at it. Since I haven't breathed through my nose in two weeks, that's really hitting the old nostrils. Can you imagine? The old olfactory bulb is really getting punched. Stupid idea. (laughs) (laughs) An idiot. (laughs) Not smart. That dude has definitely been on the Tim Ferriss podcast. No question. Oh, I I bet he has. There's no doubt. Uh, Like, for sure. Uh, uh, Microdose LSD. (laughs) Okay, cool, man. Thanks. It's awesome. He's definitely been on Joe Rogan. A hundred percent. I eat mescaline oatmeal every day, baby. (laughs) All right. Yeah, that's cool. You're a free thinker. That's awesome. (laughs) We're all just conformists. Uh. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, they don't participate in Doctor Harari's collective fiction. No, 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 no. Uh, I only had two, not top threes. I don't hate that. I don't dislike that many books. And actually, one of these I didn't even dislike. Yeah. So the first one is you can't lose them all. Colin, mm. cousin Sal's funny but true tales of sports gambling and questionable parenting uh, by Sal Icano, who is among my favorite humans alive. The only, the only, and I like, I really liked listening to him talk about all these ridiculous stories. The only reason it's not top is because it's, it caters to such a specific audience that I couldn't possibly recommend it to anybody who doesn't know that it already exists. You know what I mean? Yes. Yep. So if you like Cousin Sal from the Bill Simmons podcast, you should listen to this because you'll enjoy it. And if you don't, then you should not because you'll hate it. And that's all all there is to it. Yep. I get that. That's it. The other one I absolutely despised, and I would skip over it, but I think... Absolutely despised. This is exciting. But I think it's worth talking about why I despised it. So the book is called Blackout, colon. Oh. Oh my god. I'm sorry. This is gonna... I almost just... I almost just said, let's just assume I was thinking of the most offensive book I could think of. Mm -hmm. And I was almost going to say that before you said Blackout, and now I'm comparing two tomes with each other. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Blackout. This is Blackout, colon, How Black America Can Make Its Second Escape from the Democrat Plantation. Oh, jeez. So this is... Christ. This is... I read your review to many people on this. Like, I, I shared your review with a lot of people, and I remember many of the phrases from it. Yeah. So this is Candace Owens' book. I don't want to get too far into it. What The reason I, th- is I think it's worth bringing up is that I don't want people to think that I just... I hated it because it's Candace Owens. It, yeah. This book actually was very validating for me because mm. I was never actually worried, but I didn't... I was... I wondered if there was a scenario where I would disagree with her, but I, I actually, I, I hoped I would read her book and disagree probably with what she was saying, but really like enjoy or take value out of the process by which she arrived at those conclusions yep. to inform, help me inform my own opinions, well-rounded opinions. Instead, what I got was just, it's just garbage. Like there's no, and I mean that like, she didn't yeah. it's, it's it's just not it's not well written like there's no there's no argument in it so like in a typical argument you would present facts and try to use things like logic to string those facts together and have a point and andis or owens kind of works in this other way <laughs> where she shares an anecdote and then like kind of goes off on a tangent and just kind of like says bad things about people she doesn't like. 
which mm-hmm. it was really frustrating to me because I was hoping to take like to learn something and I didn't learn anything. It was just very. Do you um, think it's possible that that argumentative structure you just laid out that she learned that or was validated that that's a useful argumentative form by any public figures you can think that's of? the problem is that it's effective nowadays like it's, it's super effective <laughs> yeah uh, super effective <laughs> but if you're i don't know i was just i was i was very frustrating yeah. for me personally because i was trying like i kind of went out of my way to kind of to do to read yeah. something i normally wouldn't and was very disappointed uh i would not recommend reading this book it was it was very frustrating and and, and frankly just like exceedingly offensive like for most yeah. of it so i we can stop talking about it <laughs> well i do want to just i want to mention something because you made it you made it an interesting point about like wanting to be not persuaded but just like oh okay i see where you're coming from yeah. the i see where you're coming from feeling because i just read an article that was i think intended to be a like a positive about aaron Rodgers, and i just i finished it and was it was funny i actually could understand so speaking specifically about vaccination, not about him, his whole overall thing, but the article was kind of trying to make his anti-vax point, which was like, hey, throughout history, whoever is telling somebody else to shut up and censoring them, he says, like, when has the person being censored been the wrong party? And it's like this very bullshit but also very appealing argument. Yeah. And so <laughs> I was reading that. And and like I said, the personal stuff on him was just, he was such, he was so annoying that by the end I was like, you just suck. Yeah. I you still think you suck. But I could see yes. the sexiness and the appeal of what he was saying. And I was like, I can see how I would be pulled in by that. Yeah. And relatedly, I was just listening to Chris Wallace on um, Dak Shepard. And if people haven't listened. I really like that interview. He was terrific. And one of the questions that Dax Shepard asked him was, and he kind of didn't answer, which was one of the few times he didn't, but like, when have you been sucked in by a, a seductive, bad actor? Like, have you ever, like, uh, Dax's example was um, uh, Mohammed bin Salman and how he went on this really successful press tour in the United States. He, the, I think he's the crown prince, right, of, of Saudi Arabia mm-hmm. who killed... The, the journalist and it was basically just saying how a lot of journalists were sort of duped into giving this person a platform and being seduced by him because he really knew how to do it and i thought that was such an interesting question to ask because i think most of the time people who gain sort of national prominence or like gain a place in people's minds do so by appealing to something and usually it's at least identifiable. Like when I hear certain people I disagree with, I usually can identify why. And it's sort of interesting to explore why and then why it doesn't appeal to you. But for you to have read it and to not even been able to glean that, it's like, well, then what the hell? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. It was extremely frustrating. And uh, I would not recommend anyone read it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Let's move on. Let's be done with the negatives. Yeah. Let's do the positives. Number seven, baby. Number seven. This was really fun to read. So this is one of the two books I read this year that were nonfiction that didn't have a colon in the title. This one is called simply Eat a Peach by David Chang. I haven't read this, but bought it for Felicia because maybe your recommendation or maybe just because I read 
that it was really good. I know that Diamond doesn't work because it was last Christmas. Yeah. But I just heard it was really good. Did you like it? Oh, I loved it. It was... What's it about? It's just so... Okay, so David Chang is kind of like a celebrity chef. He kind of occupies yeah. like kind of like a couple different realms. He's like... He has his own podcast. He's Ugly Delicious, right? Yeah. Is that him? Yep. Yeah. Um, Like very prominent Asian-American kind of like celebrity chef. And he owns... He owns and started like all these different restaurants, like Momofoku. Oh, and uh, I didn't know Milk that was Bar. him. Uh, oh. the, the one, the big one in LA is called Major Domo. He's got restaurants like all over the place, and they're and they range in style, and price level, and he kind of has like this like restaurant empire, and he's kind of created like this celebrity chef icon for himself. So, mm-hmm. um, I was interested because I I've never really read much about someone like that, and I was interested in him because I've listened to him a couple times on podcasts and thought he was fun. So picked up the book and. The, the the cover is actually really incredible. It's like this Sisyphean image of like a guy carrying a giant peach, which is cool. But uh, so it's it's biogra- it's autobiographical, and there's a lot. I was expecting to hear a lot of like cool stories about the restaurant industry, which I'm fascinated by. And there's a lot of that. Like there's a lot of cool stories of like cool true stories about how to start like your own restaurant and how to scale it up and how to like just like the fun stuff that. The fun, crazy stories that go along with running restaurants. There's a lot of that. And he rubs shoulders with a lot of cool, fun people. But what I thought was unique to this that I really, really enjoyed is that he's extremely transparent about kind of himself and his personality and his struggles and his failures. So, like, in a way that a lot of people are, are kind of have to be good about being transparent about very public shortcomings you have. But which he has several like he's been criticized for certain restaurants he's done or certain he's handled like the magazine that he he, like there's like all kinds of things that are very public kind of downfalls that he acknowledges but he spends a lot of time talking about like what he considers personal defects in his management style like he's by all his own account just like very difficult and like like oftentimes like problematic person to work for because uh, he's extremely, extremely intense. And it, like that's, like, I think, a part of a lot of success stories that gets overlooked. is like you kind of have to be, you don't have to be. A lot of times you end up having to be kind of a prick um, to be, to kind of get what you need out of people. Yeah. And um, I don't know, he's just like very transparent about that and how he's gone about changing the way he operates throughout his career and how that's not good enough for some of the people that he encountered early in his career. And like the whole package, I, I just thought was like very, it, it came off as, I don't who knows how genuine it is. It came off as very genuine. And I really liked reading it. I had a weird Dave Chang experience where I think I tried to watch his show on Netflix and Netflix queued up the first episode of season two mm. instead of the first episode of season one or something. And so I ended up, I never watched the whole show. But I watched like one episode and it was him talking about the birth of his child and how I think if I'm remembering correctly, it was mostly just about like his own struggle to be ready to be a father and figuring out sort of how to fit a child into his life and yada, yada, yada. But so I know nothing really about his cooking, but I watched like one hour of just a person. He could have been a a railroad worker for all I know, just a guy talking about i am scared to be a dad and it was super interesting and i thought i was struck by the same stuff that you seem to have liked like he was just 
being really honest about something that's hard to say out loud, which is it's scary to, to take on that sort of responsibility. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff like that in here. Yeah. So I, yeah, I, it's in addition to that, it's also just very fun. Like there's just a lot of cool stuff in here about food and restauranting and stuff yeah. like that. So I imagine a lot of people would get a lot from this book. I, and it's, it's very breezy. I read it in like a couple of days. It's very, he's good writing style. So he's very funny. Also, <laughs> he was like, there's a funny story at the very beginning of the book about, uh, about the cover and how they were like, insisting that he put a picture on the front cover. Uh, and he's like, great, let's put a picture of Idris Elba on there. Um, <laughs> and they were like, That's awesome. we men of you, Dave. And he was like, well, th- we're not going to do that. So let's figure something out. And he like kind of goes into that oh whole story. God. But um, That's amazing. It's very funny to read. So let's uh, eat a peach. I like it. Number six. This one is uh, kind of niche, but it really stuck with me. So I listened to this book. I wouldn't recommend listening to it because it's like very weird like robotic narration, but I don't know. I, I did get a lot out of it. So the, the book is called the willpower instinct colon, how self-control works, why it matters <laughs> and what you can do to get more of it. So if <laughs> can you repeat that? The willpower instinct, how self-control works, why it matters and what you can do to get more of it. <laughs> so if it's holy shit that's a big commitment to me as a reader like you're you better deliver on that if it sounds like self-help uh it is it's literally self-help the author is kelly mcgonigal who's like a behavioral psychologist which i read because at work i this is like i guess this i read it in 2021 so it wasn't like right in the middle of like pandemic but i was just feeling like very 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 unfocused at work uh, and it was affecting my work product. And so I was like, I'm going to read, I'm going to read something about this. And this helped like a lot. So it's, it's a kind of a, it's, this is such, it's so weird to recommend this. It's kind of a course. Like they tell you to read, it's like 12 chapters. They tell you to read it over the course of like 12 weeks, which I did. And what I liked about it is that it's every chapter is broken out into like, here's the science Here's the research. Here's like some steps you could do in your personal life to to like, you know, to put it into into practice. And so whatever it is, like they they tell you pick two pick two things like that you're going to do when you read the book. One like big thing that you need to fix and one small thing that you like, would you know that would be fun to fix. And it was like super effective and I just like really enjoyed reading about kind of like the the science behind what causes us to have self-control and what are the the pitfalls and you know stuff like that and this this is what i kept saying like ties really well with breath that breath book because there's a lot of science behind the correlation between your ability to exert willpower and breathing techniques like slowing your breathing down for 10 minutes a day which i've done every day since i read this book and i found it to be super helpful there's other small things in like i think there's like a hundred suggestions in this book and I've maybe implemented four or five, but it's made a big difference. And I think it's kind of the whole, a big point of the book is those four or five things that you take away from it will probably be different for everyone who reads it. And so I fell into it because I was specifically looking to address a willpower deficiency, but I ended up getting a lot more out of it. And I think yeah, it's not like fun reading, but I, I think, it, I don't know. It, it, I, I really enjoyed it. 
And uh, I think probably even if you're not trying to address a specific willpower thing, like you could probably get a lot out of it. I talked to somebody about how I listened to a lot of the Tim Ferriss podcast right after college. And I think for me at the time, it was my brain trying to find a new thing to focus it. And like, what's the new exciting set of things I'm going to learn. And now where I feel like I'm fully sort of into adult life where I'm thinking about, you know, the house or I'm thinking about work or, you know, our family expanding, like I've got, you know, nephews and all that stuff like that kind of thing. My brain is plenty stimulated now. And so that Tim Ferriss thing doesn't scratch that itch for me now the way it did. And so I think it's interesting because I'm noticing as you're saying it, you're like almost like, is this really number six on my list? But I think what you're getting at is like it it serves a really important need for you when it served it. And maybe now it's like, well, who cares? But only because it already did its job. Yeah, that's definitely true. Like I, it just feels weird. There's just like a stigma around like self-help. Yeah. I think what's the George Carlin joke? Like (laughs) if you have to read a book, it's not self-help. It's just help. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Which, so this is maybe not self-help, it's just help. But, um, I don't know, like, the reason that it's still on the list is because looking back on it, like, there's, like, a very clear distinction between before I read this book and after, and how I think about things, and not just how I think about things, like, how I actually behave, uh, for the better. And so, I don't... That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, like... It, it comes and goes, but that, that that's like all part of the book is like, you should expect that, whatever. whatever. We don't have to get too much further into it, and who knows. But if you happen to be trying to address a specific willpower challenge, this would be great. And if you're not, maybe read it anyways, and uh, it's fun. So that was number six. Uh, okay, number five is a really cool, cool book called Under a White Sky colon the nature of the future by elizabeth colbert maybe it's colbert colbert i saw this one on bill gates's list for 2021 he's a really smart guy uh so i thought i'll read this book that that smart guy read and i'm really glad i did so she wrote she's pretty famous for having written uh this book called the sixth extinction which kind of, oh i've heard of that yeah you probably yeah a lot of people probably heard of the book uh this is like this is the book that you write after you've written a book like the sixth extinction where your publisher is like here take three years and write something else here's a bunch of money <laughs> it's like being denis villeneuve and you're like yeah i'll make dune okay hey that was cool yeah that's exa- yeah exactly and yeah. this is like dune fucking awesome um yeah <laughs> so it, the 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 conceit here is that we as humans have, through a series of science and engineering advances, solved a bunch of problems, but now those... Wait, and it ends perfectly and there's no issues after and that? And that's the book. That's it. Nice work, everybody. You can go home early today. <laughs> so now, but now it, like, there's this like chain reaction fallout where like the, the thing that we used as a solution now is a problem 
And so now you have to Shit. fix those problems. So it's like it's like this like response. It's specifically like technology and science that is a response to previous scientific yeah. and technological advances. So an example is like a good yeah a really good example. The first chapter of the book is the levee system in New Orleans. Hey, yeah. New Orleans isn't underwater because we pushed all the water over here. Well, guess what? Now Louisiana, <laughs> the rest of Louisiana is disappearing because it's being flooded with water yeah so now they have to figure out how to fix that and then like another example is um there's all and it's it's and the, the genetic engineering like we genetically engineered frogs it's in australia we genetically engineered these toads to get rid of this certain bug yep and they do with remarkable efficiency but guess what now you can't walk 10 feet in this part of Australia without stepping on a fucking frog that'll kick your dog. Like, it's crazy. So now we have to figure out how to kill off these frogs or whatever. So it's like 12 chapters, and each chapter is a different specific example like this. And it's just fucking fascinating. And the breadth of it is like the first third of the book is like that, like that, um, like that, uh, like ecological, like biological kind of focused then the second half is kind of like genetic engineering and then the last the third probably best portion of the book is like climate related stuff yep all three are fascinating the climate section is particularly incredible because she kind of goes through in detail and explained it in terms that i hadn't thought of like global warming like she uses this really cool analogy of a bathtub and the bathtub is filling up with water and when the bat and when it gets to the lip, we're fucked, right? And it's like as an analogy for like increasing temperature. And a lot of the efforts that we're using are kind of like the same are analogous to like reducing the amount of water that's coming into the tub. Mm-hmm. But all the water that's already there is still there. And so she's like differentiating yeah. between slowing down the tap and removing water that's already in the tub. And there's all this yeah. stuff that is happening. And the the title of the book, Under a White Sky, is related to this concept of... <laughs> if you've ever seen Snowpiercer, this is terrifying. Of, like, shooting aerosols into the atmosphere to reflect yeah. sunlight. Which would, like, over time make the sky turn white. And so, that's just, that's like just kind of a very visceral kind of image that... Ex- that kind of explains the kind of things that she's thinking and talking about in this book. So if you're interested in engineering, science, biology, and being a human that's going to be alive for the next 50 years, I would say you should definitely read this book. It's super interesting. Oh, God, that sounds incredible. I'm very interested. I'm preemptively a little upset already, but very, very interested. It. What's cool about this one is that I didn't leave it she like she literally ends the book kind of like explaining how like pessimistic or optimistic you should be feeling and the answer is like probably a mix of both yeah it's just really fascinating and the, the particularly that last third of the book really kind of like put in terms something that i only understood vaguely in like a very clear and concise yeah. way so i it's i really highly recommend this one well i think the thing that i have found difficult about stuff like this is reminding myself to care enough 
and reminding myself to have good anecdotes and good explanations because like it's very easy. I was talking to somebody recently who was talking about Tesla and how like, oh, what a great, you know, awesome Tesla. And it's like, that would be, I think, maybe a good example of like the kind of slowing the tap down a little bit where you're like, oh, it's a, it's uh, an electric vehicle. Good. But, you know, obviously there's the root cause, which is, OK, well, how does that electricity get produced? <laughs> and it's like, well, OK, so what are we really doing here? But creating a framework for thinking and explaining things in a way that gets you away from, hey, Tesla is fixing the problem to it's good. It's fine. You know, okay. Woo. But let's, let's continue to address the bigger stuff and not allowing myself or allowing other people to be distracted. That's like a place that I'm finding myself. It's, it's hard to stay in that frame of mind. It's hard to have the good list of anecdotes that you can use, like deploy like that. Yeah. This is, this is because we can only do our part, right? Like I'm not, I'm not a public policy person and so i can i can care as much as i care but my sphere of influence is not wide but i am i do feel responsible for my sphere of influence and so having a good set of talking points and ways of thinking that's that's the best i can do and that's important well and i think probably one of the most important things you can do is be knowledgeable about where we are realistically and how we need to be investing our resources because yeah. Policymakers, at the end of the day, in many ways, are a response to how we vote and how we, even if you're not out there, like, you know, heading some kind of organization, like your vote carries power and is going to yeah. carry a lot of weight um, yeah. going forward. And so, like, being intelligent and informed about where, where we should be investing our resources is just as important as recycling or driving an electric car or yeah. whatever it is. So, yeah. I, yeah. Highly recommend this one. Love it. All right. Number four. <clears throat> this one was nuts. So this one is called Last Call, colon, a true story of love, lust, and murder in queer New York. Well, if I have heard any great title today, it was this one. That is an incredible hook. It's fucking awesome. So <laughs> I don't know where. <laughs> this was just on a list of like hotly anticipated books on Goodreads or something. I just like the title is cool. The cover is awesome. I just immediately yeah. put it on a wait list at the library. So it's, I compare it to in my review. I kind of compared it to devil in the white city in that I see that I'm on Goodreads right now. It's a very, it's very similar in that it's investigating in like kind of a true crime way in this like kind of formulaic way we've come to love like very serious string of murders Mm -hmm. and where the devil in the white city like used the backdrop of the world's fair and kind of explaining that period of like american kind of like expansion onto the world stage in this case it's looking specifically at how the gay community at that time was and how it was evolving but like very specifically how it allowed this kind of <laughs> crime to occur because it's like it reminded me kind of remember you told me to read that book child 44 where mm -hmm. this guy is trying to solve these murders in soviet russia and the government is like actively trying to deter yeah. him from doing it and it's there are no murders in the perfect yeah. soviet society in a in a different way yeah in a different way it's like 
the the environment which in which these crimes were being committed made it very difficult to investigate and prosecute them because it was like a community that obviously still we're not there yet but even compared to 30 40 years ago it's a very different case which made it like really difficult for people to i think in some ways care and hear about it so like the half of the book is kind of explaining that and the other half is just this riveting kind of like journalistic review of like some pretty wild murders so it's really fascinating it's really well written that's yeah i don't know it's kind of the only only pitch you need it's like it's it, to, to throw it in the same you know kind of arena as devil in the white city especially from somebody who has such regard for that yeah. like you are a noted lover of devil in the white city and so to mention <laughs> that is a high honor yeah indeed i'm def i'm i will take all of these recommendations very seriously but those last two are like those sound like bangers. We're getting into like the part of the list that yeah. like, these are kind of like close to must reads if you like reading. So I was thinking about this. Can I do mine on the honorables so that we can end with yours? Yeah. And don't have you finish and then I'll do mine. Let's do it. I'd rather end with you. Mm -hmm. All right. So for the honorables or my honorables or my list, whatever, I'll do quickly. So... I've got sort of two tiers I just laid out. So on there, like, really good. Because actually, I had a great nonfiction year. I was looking, and I had, like, a really good nonfiction year. So good ones. Uh, Isaac's Storm, which is Eric Larson, mm. author of Devil in the White City. I think his first book, it's about a guy who works at the National Weather Service uh, in Galveston, Texas, during a major hurricane in the early 1900s, maybe late 1800s. Sweet. Um, Really interesting. If you like Devil in the White City or uh, In the Garden of the Beasts or any of his work, it's like it's fun. It's like um, it's like watching. <laughs> oh my god, I'm gonna say Brick. <laughs> I hate Brick, but <laughs> it's like watching the early work of somebody you like, and you see the seeds of what they're gonna become. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's awesome. But Brick's probably a bad example because I hate Brick. But Isaac Storm was good. Conan Doyle for the defense was about a real-life case in which Sir Arthur Conan Doyle uh, advocates for a, he thinks, wrongly accused um, uh, criminal in Scotland in the 1800s. And it was funny because the book, in the parts where it talked about Conan Doyle, it was kind of boring, but the parts where it talked about this case and, and how the law works and the legal system at the time and policing methods, especially um, like very racialized policing methods. And I mean, racialized in the racial, like racialism, like people's ah. skulls kind of way at the time. Super interesting. Uh, when genius failed is one of those like classic um, shit didn't work in a financial company books. Mm. And it's a really good one. It's about long-term capital management, which was this hedge fund in the, I think I want to say I want to say it was the 90s, like late 90s. Now I'm forgetting exactly which year, but um, it's all these these geniuses who have one of the biggest asset raises in hedge fund history and proceed to basically screw it all up. And it's like the, a postmortem on all that. Uh, it's, it's, you know, if you like to the big short or whatever, it's like that. OK, um, the cruelty is the point which is the title of this author, Adam Serwer, who is a political writer I really like, uh, who writes for The Atlantic. It was the title of this article he wrote about Trumpism. And basically his ultimate point is don't try to understand it because the cruelty is the point. You're like, don't try to work through why he, that he's cruel. It's That's the point itself. 
And so it's this, it's a collection of his essays slightly edited with some additional stuff from the Trump presidency. And it's alarming, but beautifully written and worthwhile. I'm definitely going to read Spy it. and the Traitor was uh, like a big one that a lot of people read. Did you read that one? No, but I, you told me about it at Nate and Janie's wedding. I remember being yes. so excited about it. Russian uh, Russian spy who uh, ends up defecting to or, or ends up excuse me not defecting he ends up becoming a double agent for MI6 and as good as it sounds all right these, this is the the really really good stuff American Nations which you read uh, I don't think so so this is like what we were saying about sapiens it's just a reframing of the history of the United States as oh, these yeah. are not different regions of one country these are or one nation these are actually different nations Schulte told me to read this that's why I know it, it yeah was incredible yeah, okay. the last portion where it takes all these historical learnings and makes them modern it creaks a little bit but rethinking the United States fascinating I'm for sure reading that. So up your alley. The Invention of Nature, uh, which is a book about Alexander von Humboldt, who is a German naturalist. And it's it was this one of these things where he's a person whose name I had heard. Humboldt Park, which you know, mm-hmm. uh, is named after him. He has more places named after him than anybody, which I'm sure is an unquantifiable yeah. thing. And I'm sure Jesus H. Christ would disagree. <laughs> but he has like a lot of places named after him. He was... This naturalist who was a public intellectual and wildly famous and actually just like popular with the regular folk in his day. And the book is all about how he helped frame modern thinking about nature and like environmentalism and how he was, Hmm. again, these are all tough to exactly verify, but he was the first or one of the first first people to identify anthropogenic uh, climate change in a very specific place where a river was being diverted and it was actually changing the climate. So he's like this brilliant man, really interesting. The two I mentioned, uh, Say Nothing, which was this story about Northern Ireland by Patrick Radden Keefe and Empire of Pain, which is about the Sackler family uh, who owned uh, Purdue Pharmaceutical, the manufacturer of OxyContin. If you haven't read anything by him, you haven't read those I have rarely encountered such brilliant narrative feeling, brutally honest, like just incredibly meticulously researched uh, nonfiction. Like it is Larson-esque. It is unreal. And though he skews a little more towards research and a little less towards narrative, but still has just an incredible grasp of that. I'm next in line at the library for Empire of Pain. So I'm very excited out of this fucking world so disturbing but he's like a lawyer he just builds a case progressively and just perfectly to the point where like he's gotten the prisoner he's got them like in the old days he's gotten them walked up to the electric chair like he they are right there they've got the caps on they got the electrodes they've already put the sponge on them like he just gets you step by step by step all the way there and then Heavy by Kiese Lehman. Uh, it's just a memoir of um, this black author growing up as a heavy person. Uh, I think Mississippi. And he is just a, an incredibly beautiful writer. It's a story. It's just a story of a life. No, like, there's no big twist. It's just the story of a person's life, but a really sensitive and beautiful one. 
And the last thing book I read very recently that I was so impacted by was My Body by Emily Ratajkowski, which I know you and I talked about a little bit. It's she is uh, and it's so funny, like after reading the book, describing who she is is very fraught because yeah. <laughs> the book is a lot about who she is and like what how to define her. But she's uh, the model you might recognize from Blurred Lines. She also was in uh, Gone Girl as the other woman for Ben Affleck. Um, she's in a bunch of other things, but it's just about her relationship to her own body, how she's tried to use it to get famous, get money, fight against sexism in her own life, take control of her own life, and how it's been a really complicated relationship between her and her body. And it was really interesting. And she's an incredible writer and i hope she just like writes i don't give half a shit what she writes about write about you know murder mysteries for all i care she's just a really good writer i'm definitely gonna read that one yeah that's it cool wow all right should i do do, do you've got some some honorables then yeah i'll do mine okay so I'll, I'll blast through these so what address the address book colon what street addresses reveal about identity race wealth and power by george mask boom it was good. I was hoping for more of like a hard hitting analysis of like inequity and like city planning. And there's like some of that, but it's very high level. It's a, it kind of ends up being a lot of, a lot of the, it is kind of like, uh, just like fun anecdotes, not anecdotes, but like yeah. fun stuff about how street names come. It's, it's all very fun and good. I, I think I was just hoping for something a little more like. Remember when Michael Scott gets in trouble at the office for repeating the Chris Rock bit about Martin Luther King? Streets named Martin Luther King Boulevard. There's a whole chapter specifically about that, actually. Yeah. Which is really interesting. It's actually, it's actually very good. I, I, I like that. Think Again by Adam Grant. I really liked this one. And I, I listened to it, which makes sense, because Adam Grant's like a pretty accomplished podcaster. I don't think I know him. Oh, you know him. He's been on Dax a bunch of times. He does TED Talks. Okay. Hmm. Remember, I don't remember which episode it was. We talked about the the benefit of procrastination and how it fosters creativity yeah that's an adam grant thing um this book is all about like why how we've become really really bad at reevaluating and the benefits of like kind of changing your opinion and like (laughs) and step right and steps it's very timely yeah and steps on how to do that and how there's like a whole middle section of the book that's kind of about changing your own opinion and how to actually change someone else's and spoiler alert, it's not by just like digging your heels in and repeating what you know to be true. So I thought it was actually very tastefully kind of laid out and sobering in places. So that was good. It's also something I, in my personal life, I'm trying to work on because I think what I've realized is that historically, this is going to be, this is a really shitty thing to admit, but I think historically my posture on when I disagree with somebody, but when they're really like, they care more than I do is I will do what they're saying or I'll go along and then in my brain say, you just, you're still wrong. And it's like a really, it's like a dumpy way of like faking compromise, but like not actually agreeing. And I've been trying to work on actually hearing that. And I think maybe it's, maybe it's like the house and living with Caroline in a house where it's like it's such an equal partnership that I have no choice but to win some and lose some. 
and I want to, and I think, I think this is maybe what it is. And I want to actually believe in the ones that I lose. Like I want, like if she says we, I, she cares more about the lamp we put in a room and like, she really wants the lamp. Well, I live in the house and if she's going to win the lamp thing, I want to come around to why that lamp is the right choice. And it's not an option for me to just say like, yeah, okay. She's wrong. That was stupid. Like I need to get on board with it. And so I don't know. I feel like that's helped me. And that's something I'm really trying to work on because I've not been good at that. Well, then you don't need to read this book. It seems like you're kind of ahead of the no, curve, but no, I think I do need to read the book though because it's not because I'm kind of an asshole and I think I'm right usually and I'm not, but I need to remind myself of that. Well, this will, it might not tell you how to do that better, but it'll explain to you in more detail why it's advantageous to do so. Yeah, that'll help me. Yeah, that'll help me because I don't think it's actually that hard. Well, it's just don't be a dick. It's like like structurally, it's not very com- complicated. It's just like I have to do it. I, well, at least for me, like reading about why in specific details something is advantageous makes me more likely to do it. If, yes. Even if I, yep. That's why. That's why the willpower instinct, <laughs> Kyle Sand. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I found that book to be so effective was because it was putting reasons behind things I knew I should already be doing. Yep. All right, <clears throat> this one is called Just Babies. <laughs> Did you listen to Paul Bloom on Armchair? No. He's a like behavioral psychologist. And oh, sorry, this one is called Just Babies: The Origins of Good and Evil. And I've always been fascinated. That sounds like a book you would read. I've always been really, really interested in like the nature of morality and whether or not it's like something we're born with or something we learn or some combination of the two. And this book is just about that. He studies. He's actually a developmental psychologist, so he studies specifically young children and infants and what their minds can tell us about what we're born with and what we learn and when we learn it specifically a lot of a big part of this book is like when we learn to be decent people and he does a lot of theorizing as to why we have developed morality over time and why that benefits us as people and it's just fucking fascinating it it, it reads like you would expect it to it's kind of you know a psychology book but uh, i really really enjoyed it prisoners of geography colon 10 maps that explain everything about the world by tim marshall it's just that it's 10 chapters 10 maps and they just kind of explain different actually a really uh, uh, relevant one right now is why russia cares so much about the ukraine Mm. which there's a very what's the what's the shorthand is it the shorthand uh, is that russia has no year-round seaports so like all of their entire coastline is frozen for half the year and so They through um what Ista or not Istanbul um Sevastopol or yeah I think it's Sevastopol yep. yeah so that is like their one port that through their alliance with the Ukraine they have access to a, a freshwater or a, a all a year round port that doesn't freeze mm-hmm. and so they're like incredibly reliant on that port to get a lot of the stuff that they need via barge and ship and so they can't really afford to have Ukraine and NATO because. In the event of some potential conflict down the road, that all of a sudden they've been cut off from that means of access. Mm. So it like really puts into stark detail like why. That's, that's cool. I like that. And there, it's like 10 things that are just like that. Like yeah. there's a whole thing in, about Africa and like why they, why Africa has developed more slowly than Europe. And it has a lot to do with the fact that a country like Asia 
the transversal from east to west means that you have like one climate and so there's like consistent yeah consistent climate conditions it makes it easier to you know the silk the silk road and all that like yeah. whereas africa is like the same distance oh that's interesting like if you're going from east to west and you're wearing this coat it's just, you're good you don't have to change coat whereas in africa and then like also it's like largely <laughs> it's really interesting it's largely at the same elevation so there's a lot of yeah. in europe like there's a lot of rivers that are actually traversable whereas africa mm-hmm. there's for all the rivers it has you can't like ride the nile from north africa to <laughs> south so like crocodiles of course and just like fucking crazy grade change so like it's just and crocodiles and mostly crocodiles and so like and there's like one of these for like there's really interesting stuff about the chinese and why they're so interested in um india and like their border and like the the source of fresh water at the top of the those mountains so it's just really fascinating wow that's really cool it's really cool uh highly recommend that one that's called 10 maps that explain prisoners of geography 10 maps that explain everything about the world and there might be a newer version that has a different subtitle. Uh, but so just, but is it longer? It's slightly different, but it's uh it's more like emphasis on geopolitics. But just if you search prisoners of geography, you'll yeah. find it. That's cool. It's really cool. This cool book, Nudge, uh, Improving Decisions About Health, Wealth, and Happiness by Richard Thaler. Our friend Nate recommended this to me. It's more, but it's behavioral economists, these two guys that wrote it. It's really interesting. It's like how, it's the concept of, I can't remember, I wrote it down in my review of the book. They coined this term that's really, it's cool enough that I'm going to take the time to look at, look it up. Okay. Yeah. The, the, the concept is uh, libertarian paternalism so it's the idea that we as like policymakers should be guiding people into making choices that we know benefit them but we don't want to force people to make those decisions but we should be nudging them into doing it and so the the easiest so like instead of having gun control laws somehow have policies and incentives in place that make it so that you don't actually have to or i guess incentives in place so that there doesn't actually have to be something written down it just encourages people in the right direction like to stop shooting each close other, that kind of thing yeah close it's the, the best example the easiest to understand is like you should be saving you should be putting money into your 401k right yeah and oftentimes your company when you when you when you start a new job they say do you want to do this or do you not and the default is you don't and they found that if you make the default yes and then give people an option to opt out, 95% mm-hmm. of people will stay in. And so yeah. your company should make putting money into a 401k the default. And it's, so it's small nudges like that that point people in oh, the I right. like that. But you don't force anyone to do anything. But by making these small policy kind of adjustments, you're kind of guiding people into better versions of themselves and and then it has like more general societal but and there's whole host of applications for this as you can imagine it's a little dense but it's really interesting wow i really like that that's like if i said to you like kyle we're gonna snuggle on this couch right (laughs) as opposed to kyle would you like to snuggle on this couch exactly yeah it's how you frame it exactly yeah and so Mm -hmm. I i thought that was really interesting Last one is this cool little, it's probably only like 40 pages. I listened to it and it was like three hours long. Think of it as just like a podcast series and listen to it. It's called A Thousand Pounds of Dynamite. It's the same guy who wrote 
uh, Midnight in Chernobyl. So, oh, and it's this crazy story. Still have to read. You should. Yeah, it's this crazy story about this dude and his two sons that hold up a casino by rolling a huge cart of dynamite in there and basically like holding the casino as <laughs> ransom. This is a true story. And this is, of course, in development as a Steven Soderbergh film. It should be. It really reads. It it's it's fucking fascinating and it's like all about it sounds like logan lucky or you know Ocean. it's literally that i would recommend highly recommend listening to this one it's quick wow it's very okay quick. i'm in uh so those are my honorables we still have three to go let's get back to it baby we can do these quick all right oh no we're good number three very very important book last year i talked about the color of law and how important it was mm-hmm. this for me this year was like in this in that same kind of uh, zone, I would put it. So it's called The Whiteness of Wealth, How the Tax System Impoverishes Black Americans and How We Can Fix It. So it's exactly what it says it is. <laughs> there's like... Straightforward title. This is by Dorothy A. Brown. So there's like five chapters, each one addressing a different aspect of tax law or tax policy and how it disproportionately affects black Americans because... The IRS, like, famously is colorblind. They don't, and it's part of the problem she outlines, is that they don't even collect racial data. And so it's hard to pinpoint exactly how tax law affects people on the basis of race. Yeah, because you, if you're going to do any sort of study of, you, like, even to get the most basic information, what are people paying in taxes you actually wouldn't have access to that information. It's all, exactly. So it's all like... Like you literally wouldn't even be able to, you couldn't even start, you would have to interpolate by saying, we have racial data on the average annual income of black Americans, and then say, on that basis, we would say, based on their you know tax bracket, this is what they paid. You completely identified the crux of like yeah. half the book. So, well, that's fucked up. <laughs> exactly. So you have to, you have to, infer basically like okay we know that this policy affects people that are married and have incomes that are about the same and we know that black americans disproportionately make up people who are married and have similar incomes so yeah then you can interpolate and figure it out from there oh yeah that's useful (laughs) right so but that's that's like the first chapter is like the idea of dual income taxes (laughs) and how historically the dual income tax has benefited couples there you have one earner that makes a huge amount of money and you have one earner that doesn't doesn't do paid work so they stay at home and they have they still work it's just unpaid but from a tax perspective you it's two people that make the same amount of money and so the person that makes more money is being taxed as in the in the same bracket as someone who yeah let's say you make two hundred thousand dollars yeah but you have a spouse who doesn't have a, an income. They make zero. You're both being taxed as uh, in the bracket of someone that makes $100,000, right? Well, if you put kids into the mix too, like I guess if you just do the basic math on this, uh, having one person make 200 and one person make zero is better than 100 and 100 because you file jointly and get the joint rate. Yes. Plus you get the value of this childcare services rendered by the $0 person. Yes. This go this book yeah. goes into That's like a massive advantage. It's a it's an it's an insane advantage and yeah. she goes into a lot of detail yep. about it. So and so that's one chapter and then there's <laughs> there's it also applies to 
like capital gains. There's another chapter on that. Yeah. There's another ap- chapter on like work income or like, you know, like um, taxes surrounding like workplace income, buying houses, equity, like that kind of thing. So two, which of course this podcast is famously covered. Yes. Yeah. So two benefits to this book. One, I actually understand tax taxes <laughs> better than I did mm-hmm. before uh, in a lot of ways. And I understand how there's a disparity in how taxes levied affect white versus black Americans. So this is another like color of law was just so great because I just felt like it gave me so much ammunition and understanding yeah. of where this disparity occurs specifically. And this is just another example of that. What do they say? What's measured is whatever they say, like what's measured is improved or whatever the hell that mm-hmm. phrases. I'm going to compare this to my own situation with fluctuating weight where in 2020, I weighed myself, realized I had gotten fat. And to fix that, I had to radically confront the information I had chosen not to confront. <laughs> so what I was what I was eating, when I was eating it, and how often I was exercising. What I had chosen to do was to not consume that information, not to track it and not to consume it. And so I wouldn't know. But the moment I started tracking and actually digesting that information, problem solved because it was very obvious what the problems were. I wasn't working out enough and I was eating too much and at too wide a range of times. And the reason I wasn't measuring was not because it was difficult. It's because I didn't want to know. Right. (laughs) And that's like the very, the very premise you set up initially is just, it's so dumb. The like I know you think in Excel tables the same way I do. The thing you always do when you're trying to work with a data set, always, 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 is you start with a unique identifier, and then you tag as much information to that unique identifier as you can, always, so that even if it's excess information, you can classify based on any number of fields you want that's always what you do and to to purposely omit something as crucial as race is just it's such a it's just you're you're even if you don't ever do anything with that information to just choose not to have it feels intentional in its own right well but you can use i mean the argument is it's colorblind like we don't we can't <laughs> yeah we're not we are not targeting right. which thankfully our society has realized colorblindness is uh not <laughs> right <laughs> so i very important read and actually like yeah. i know what you're thinking like oh great like a book about taxes that sounds really fun it's dorothy a brown does a stellar job of making it very readable like i actually really enjoyed reading it like i thought it was going to be a slog and it really wasn't which is like really kind of amazing so i like it she also does a really good expert uh armchair expert episode too oh so number two you I, I bet you read this flash boys by michael lewis i have for sure read it i read that in i remember sitting on so when you walked into Bart. There was the, you immediately walked into the corner of the building where if you kept going straight, you'd get all the way to the end. And then if you go left, Mm -hmm. but there was a bench right at that corner sitting on that bench. I think that's where I started that book, but I remember specifically because 
Now in my world professionally, RBC is like a very common uh, set of initials that because it's it's just like there's a lot of connections between their that company and my own. But at the time, the idea of the Royal Bank of Canada was like such a funny. <laughs> it just sounded funny. Yeah. It's like Royal Bank. What the hell is the Royal Bank of Canada? <laughs> there's not even a king or queen in Canada. Well, it's Commonwealth nation. Like round and round and round. But I remember sitting in that chair at a place that Kyle knows well and reading that book. And it was the start of a brief because it's not a very long book, but wonderful journey. I think it was my first Michael Lewis, actually. Yeah. So for those of you, so Michael Lewis famously Moneyball. Um, yeah. But what I think is so cool about this book and is a high level, high level summary. It's basically the story of high frequency trading, kind of like how it's it's funny because I think we already talked about Soderbergh once. Oh, Thousand Hours yeah. of Dynamite. This is basically a Soderbergh movie. Like, yeah, he at the beginning, he outlines like this plot, like the running of this wire from New York to Chicago, this like secret plot that's being done. And then he goes, it's like literally like a heist movie where he like goes through the team. Like it's this guy and this guy and this guy and what they know and why they're important. And these, it's basically the story of these guys that kind of like are noticing weird stuff happening on the trading floor and they're wondering what the fuck is going on. And the short answer is that these guys figured out a way to game the system such that they were getting information like a fraction of a second before everybody else. And so they could take advantage of the difference in price between Chicago and New York. And by doing all these trades in a split second, you make money. And so it's kind of the story of like these guys figuring it out and trying to kind of find a way around it and how to combat it. And it's kind of ends up being kind of a eye opening kind of story about kind of what trading has become and what it and how kind of like inaccessible it is in some ways to quote Q it's uh, security through obscurity. Like you, you can't understand trading because it's intentionally kind of obscured. And you obviously you understand this better than I do as a, as an actual finance financier, but I just loved learning about that kind of thing and having it presented to me like a heist movie. I really enjoyed that. One thing I really like about this book and about Michael Lewis just generally is he has this cool way, I think, of looking at a field and finding the point at which people lost the thread of what it was all about. And it's it's funny, like listening to Bill Simmons talk about, you know, analytics, he's like he's not a total analytics skeptic, but he's also or not a total hater, but he's a skeptic. And he's like, well, but was the game good? And, and like he, he asks that question because ultimately Bill Simmons is a commentator on football and baseball and basketball. And the question, the essential question he's supposed to be answering in his mind is, was the game good? And what, you know, did we enjoy it? Like he's trying to get back to this first principle of like, why, why do we watch this? And I think his frustration is occasionally like you tell me about DVOA and all of these statistics, but. Was the game fun to watch? And I think the thing that's cool about this book is it's immediately presenting to you the logical endpoint of a ridiculous gaming, like gaming of of a particular process, where you have people literally in the book moving servers inches closer to <laughs> different wires to gain trading advantages. And I think 
part of what Michael Lewis does so well is he gets you to invest in this like very weird and specific game. But he also tries to point out to you at some point in this crazy thing, the idea was to help Kyle as your client retire. Right. Like at some point before we got to this, let's move my server a half inch closer than yours is. Yeah. Somebody was supposed to be accomplishing something and nobody actually understands what it is anymore. Yeah. Well, now, and now we're just like it knee deep into black box trading and it's like, <laughs> you're right. Yeah. Losing like, the thread is the perfect. Why? Yeah, right. <laughs> and I love that. I think that's so interesting because it's like that happens all the time when, when things get technical enough and they get specific enough. It's like, okay, but what was the point? What was the point all along? And I love that. And this book is a particularly good exploration of that because and, and long-term capital management or when genius failed is another financial book that I think gets at this well, which is the idea of that book is basically these professors of finance who say in theory, doing buying this and selling this should make us money and how it doesn't matter how many times you can prove out on a piece of paper that that should work. Sometimes it actually just doesn't. And that doesn't mean that your finance, you know, your your academic finance is dumb. It just means sometimes it doesn't work. And so beating your head against the wall saying, but it should, but it should work, doesn't make a difference because ultimately the point of what you're supposed to be doing is taking somebody's money for them and helping them make more money. And you can write as many papers as you want, but if it doesn't work in the real world, it doesn't work in the real world. And I thought this was like the same idea. It's like, it's the the financial system is such a perfect way to look at this weird human failing of refusing to accept that something you're doing isn't working because it's like a cool place to hide in complexity. It's this weird, mysterious thing that you can always tell somebody, but you just don't get it. But I, I I see this all the time in my own professional life where people who are the wizards behind the curtain have this fallback option where they can say, but you just don't get it. And being the person who says, yeah, but it doesn't matter if I get it. We have to help Kyle retire. Right. That's a weird place to be. And it's so cool that this book explores guys like that. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. If you liked the big short, this kind of reminded me of yeah. it a lot. So highly recommend Flash Boys. Uh, sorry, Flash Boys colon a Wall Street revolt. <laughs> That's a pretty tame yeah, uh, subtitle. Relatively speaking. Like there should be a lot longer than that. All right. Here's a long one. All right. Uh, all right. So number one, and I'll caveat this by saying that the only person that I know that I recommended this to who's read it had to take like a long pause and then like pick it back up. It's very, it's long and there's a lot. It's just like a lot. So, and I'll preface it. Well, I'm very biased as well. So the book is called the Emerald mile, the epic story of the fastest ride in history through the heart of the grand Canyon. So, which is a hilariously specific number one. Yes. Given how you've talked about like, humankind whales yeah like this racial disparities in wealth and now it's like bike ride baby so yeah 
and and part of it is because it's so so i one one of the best trips i've ever been on this summer my family and like a, a, a extended version of my family went on a rafting trip through not the grand canyon but the green river which starts in utah and eventually feeds into the uh the grand canyon and on the trip one of our guides told this story about an environmentalist who thanks to him basically was the reason that where we were camping that night was not under 200 feet of water because it had been dammed up. And so he kind of like introduced us to this like notion of environmental activism that preserved like this whole string of canyons, including the Grand Canyon that are enjoyed by millions of Americans every year or whatever. And a guy on our trip brought like mentioned this book as this this comes up in this book and it's about these these three dudes this one guy in particular that wanted to set the record for how fast you could row a boat through the grand canyon and the what's well, it's very eric larson-esque because the timing is really interesting it goes into the whole history of the canyon it starts off like at the beginning like here's how the canyon formed and then it goes into like the key the key people and how they found themselves like associated with rafting on the river in the grand canyon or whatever and they're all fascinating characters but what it comes down to is that the dam at the like however many miles upstream of the grand canyon this mm-hmm. one particular year there was all this crazy runoff from the mountains and all this storm water that they had not really accounted for and it was a scenario where the dam was in danger of overflowing and basically bursting like a serious catastrophe was potentially going to happen and to avert it they had to they ended up doing was kind of like opening up these sluices on the side of the dam to to allow some of the water to come out creating this like surge through the canyon that meant that if someone was a real lunatic they could basically ride go really fast like like basically slingshot themselves <laughs> up the river oh and through the canyon and oh my god but it's exceedingly dangerous because like we did on our trip every time you come up to a, a set of rapids you get out of your boat you look at it you plot a line through it is called and then you follow that line and these guys were just fucking like the water level was like 20 feet higher than it was normally and so all the rapids that they knew were just going to be completely changed. Like it was insanely dangerous and in fact, completely illegal. Like they were not. So even if you had, even if you had done this exact path a week before, you wouldn't, you wouldn't even see the same. These guys, marks. these guys were river guides. Like they had done it a thousand times. Yeah. It was completely different, completely unpredictable, super, super dangerous and illegal. Like the parks district said, like nobody is allowed out here. It's too dangerous. And these guys did it anyways. And so like, it's this back and forth story of like the engineers at the dam, like trying to figure out like modeling the water flow. Um, at the same time, it's this like, is Eric Larson. it's these guys like planning, like we got to fucking do this. Like, how do we get the boat? And there's this, the Emerald mile is the name of the boat that they use, which is like a, it was a retired dory that they'd used on the river for whatever. It's just, there's all these components to it. And, and the history is amazing the competing like storylines of the dam versus these guys and like that the whole context is fascinating from like a conservation and engineering and like racing perspective and then the actual description of the the guys themselves is just like riveting um i don't know if you'll enjoy it as much if you don't have the context that i have of like having 
experienced a part of it mm-hmm. and having like a really great experience out there. But I think even if you didn't have that personal aspect to lean on, it's just like a really well-written book. So that's the Emerald Mine. No, I'm sold. You you said the magic words with Eric Larson and the way you described it as being like the Larson-esque structure. I, that's just such a good formula. I'm in. I'm You, you sold me on it. I'm going to read that one. It's awesome. It's awesome. And that was it. That was I like that. And I like that that's a real, like, oh, it's a real Kyle pick that I wouldn't have seen on any lists because I will give a list and, and some of the books will be ones you saw on lists. And as great as they are, it's always like, ah, oh, but you wanted to say the one that nobody else was thinking of. And this, that is like really a Kyle. It's niche. It's very niche. Yeah. I like that. So, yeah. Great year of reading for me. And it sounds like for you too. And I've got a lot to read now. So this was great. Beautiful. Let's uh, let's recap. I'm going to pull my pork while you recap. All right. I will recap. Number 10, Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art by James Nestor. Number 9, Fathoms, The World and the Whale by Rebecca Giggs. Number 8, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind by Yuval Noah Harari. Number 7, Eat a Peach by David Chang. <laughs> Number 6, The Willpower Instinct, How Self-Control Works. I have a lot of willpower. Why It Matters and What You Can Do to Get More of It by Kelly McGonigal. Uh, number five, Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future by Elizabeth Colbert. Number four, Last Call, A True Story of Love, Lust, and Murder in Queer New York by Elon Green. Number three, The Whiteness of Wealth, How the Tax System Impoverishes Black Americans and How We Can Fix It by Dorothy A. Brown. Number two, Flash Boys, A Wall Street Revolt by Michael Lewis. And number one, The Emerald Mile, the epic story of the fastest ride in history through the heart of the Grand Canyon by Kevin Fedarko. Ah, oh, incredible. Happy reading, <clears throat> Top Teners. Happy reading, Top Teners. I love that. I'm very excited. I'm a little concerned since I've got a growing pile of uh, books to read. Yes. But I don't care. I'm adding several of those. All right. Um, and I'm excited to hear your list, Michael. So. Yeah, me too. Let's do that soon. And for now, I guess I'll do a quick thank you to Kevin McLeod for our music, which is stanky, as you know. And to my sister, Erin, who does our artwork. Her stuff is at Sant Design on Instagram. Then that's it. And I would like to not thank our social media director, Caroline. She hasn't posted jack shit in a while. Yeah. Um, we haven't given her a lot to post, to be fair. Nothing. But she didn't <laughs> do anything. But she did just book five weddings. Whoa. Uh, like last week. Yes, it's a lot of weddings. Uh, and I get my 50%. I think I get 49%. So... <laughs> Uh, but, uh, you know, follow her on her personal stuff, uh, CML photography or no caroline.juliano photography. That's her thing now. More importantly, check out what she's not doing for us on at top 10 KM, uh, on our Instagram. Uh, but actually the place we do check because we're old. Uh, if you send us an email, (laughs) top 10 KM at gmail.com. That's true. And you say you suck. You're great. David Ortiz is definitely a Hall of Famer. Barry Bonds' head really didn't grow that much, and I have pictures to prove it. Uh, or you just say, hey, I want to come on and tell you what books I liked, or your book taste sucks, or books of themselves are dumb because you're getting down to the roots of things the way that they did in some of these books. Cool. Shoot us an email. We'll chat. We have, I would say, like, we're pretty open. Like, if you, if you <laughs> want to pod with us, you've already passed the most important test. So come on. Uh, but that's it for all that stuff. I'd also like to thank 
something. No, I don't want to thank anything. I want to tell you that I'm sure you're listening to us on some sort of listening app. But if you're looking for another, you can check us out on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, pretty much wherever podcasts can be found. So, Kyle, that's all I got to say, baby. That's great, Mike. Let's get the fuck out of here. Peace.